Please take out your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We'll be reading this morning from Psalm 31. Psalm 31, we'll be reading the whole psalm. If you have one of our church Bibles or one with the same pages, you'll find that on page 461. We'll be reading from Psalm 31, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 31, this is what Holy Scripture says. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge of you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Friends, if you have your Bibles there, please keep them open to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. I think that one of the most brilliant characters in English literature ever is a donkey. Kids, do you know who Eeyore is? In Winnie the Pooh? I think Eeyore is awesome. Eeyore is awesome because Eeyore is never happy. He has a remarkable gift of finding something wrong with everything. He trods through life with a cloud of gloom over his head and the constant anticipation that whatever could go wrong will go wrong. Thanks for noticing. Are you an Eeyore? Are you an Eeyore Christian? I don't think there should be Eeyore Christians. We are beginning a series, a new series in our church. Having just finished up preaching through the book of Amos, we're doing now what's called a topical series where we're not looking at one book of the Bible, but rather looking at many and accumulating data from all of the scriptures to see what it says about delighting in God. If you're a member of this church, then you know that this church exists to delight in God, to the glory of God, for the good of all people. Well, some of you recited that with me. Thank you. That was encouraging. That's why we exist, to delight in God, to find our true happiness, our great soul's delight in God, first and foremost. Every year I like to take a few Sundays to just sort of remind us of that because delighting in God, that is, it's something that's easy to forget and it's something that's easy to put to the side. But it's important for us to remember and it's vital for us to continue to seek to find our soul's happiness in the Lord. And I wanted to do that, first of all, by having you look with me at Psalm 31. Because Psalm 31 shows us how to delight in God when our circumstances stink. And that's usually when we're tempted to not delight in God, when life is hard, mundane, boring, whatever. And let's be honest, COVID has brought a whole new challenge to the delight in God commitment. There were all kinds of things that we've had to deal with that we never had to deal with before. And perhaps in the midst of that, you were tempted to not be happy, but rather to be angry, discouraged, anxious, even depressed. Not happy, not rejoicing, not full of delight in God. If that was you, as you reflect on the last couple of years, then all the more Psalm 31 is for you. It's for me too. This Psalm is titled, uh, we might title it, How to Be Happy in God When Life Stinks, When Life is Hard. In other words, how to not be an Eeyore Christian. 
the psalm itself proceeds in two parts. It's kind of like variations on a theme. It, it sort of goes through its idea once, and then it goes through its idea a second time, expanding on it a little bit. The first part is in verses 1 to 8. Notice how the psalm begins. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Written by David, but it is to the choir master. And by dedicating this psalm to the choir master, David, David is signaling that it's a psalm that's to be sung in the corporate worship of God's people. And that's important to notice if you think that all the songs that should be sung in the church are self-affirming, peppy, stadium rock trite. (laughs) Here's a song for corporate worship that includes lament, pleading, deep sorrow, and delight. And that's just one of the reasons we try to sing psalms in our worship of God. This psalm tackles the question, how do you delight in God when you're getting squeezed by life's troubles? And David gives you five choices you can make, and and they kind of proceed uh, accordingly. The first one is this, declare your delight. That's what David does. He just just says, I'm going to be happy in God. Verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge, note that word, let me never be put to shame, in your righteousness deliver me, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save. Now there's a lot we could say about those first two verses, let me just point out to you three words, refuge, fortress, and rock. First one, refuge. Happens in verse 1, the very first line, and the last line, um, or rather uh, in in verse 2, the rock of refuge. David uses two different words. They're both translated in our Bibles, refuge, but two different words here. The first one is translating a Hebrew word that means turn aside to find shelter. It's like you're at the park with the family and a sudden downpour, you run to the park pavilion, you turn aside to the pavilion to find shelter, so a place of safety. The second time he talks about refuge is a different word when he says, be a rock of refuge for me, that describes this refuge is something like Masada, if you know that in Israel, that that mountain stronghold, uh, difficult to get to, it's a place of protection and security. And so the Lord, or rather David says, Lord, be for me my safety and be for me my security. So that's the word refuge. And then we saw the word fortress. And when he tells God to be his strong fortress there at the end of verse 2, he uses a word that means something like the protected high ground. And kids, I don't know if you've done this. Maybe you did it over winter. Uh, I saw the kids do it out here in the parking lot where the snow is piled really high. And one kid climbs to the top of the snow pile and says, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascals. And that is a declaration of war whereby uh, other children are going to try and get you off the top of the heap. And that's kind of what he's talking about here is like the top of a, a high ground, a, play, a position of safety and security. And then he uses a third word when he calls God his rock. Now, I'm old enough to remember when people were dumb enough to mail money to somebody to send them a rock. Those were called pet rocks, and that was marketing genius, and it was dumb because it was just a rock. <laughs> A rock in a box. His name is Steve. I don't know. Steve. They're all named after you, brother. Uh, David is not comparing God to a rock. 
Uh, it's a very technical term he uses here. You maybe don't get it when you just read it, but in, in the English here, it's the, the cleft in the cliff face, the sort of like where there's a cutout in the rock, a place that you would duck in and hide and find protection. And then in verses three and four, he repeats these three terms. Look at what he says. For you are my rock and my fortress. He's asked God to be this. Now he says, you are that. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now I'm pointing out these words to you in case you've ever been hiking. When I was a Boy Scout, I was taken on a 30-kilometer hike over the weekend with a 50-pound backpack. They actually put extra weights in because they would weigh our packs. They had to be 50 pounds. And as you know, that is called misery. (laughs) It was particularly misery because it literally rained the entire weekend. And I was trudging along the Bruce Trail thinking, I think I'm going to die. And carrying my big heavy pack, not wanting to be there, and we got lost. The guy didn't get his badge, whatever. And I remember when it finally was over, seeing my dad in the station wagon and taking off the pack and getting in the station wagon and saying, Dad, turn on the heat. (laughs) Refuge. See, this is what David is saying. The place of safety, place of protection. Are you happy in your refuge? Is is a stronghold a good place to be when the enemy attacks? You bet it is. And by telling God that, that God is his refuge, David's making a statement about pleasure. He's making a statement about delight. He's making a statement about joy. He's saying, you're my safety, you're my security, but more than this, you are where I want to be. I want to be with you, God. And people that delight in God, they know how to pray the truth. to to leverage what God has already revealed against God. Does that sound strange to your ears? This is what it means to pray God's word. It's to take what God has given us and then to say it right back to him and said, you said it, you better do it. This is the way to pray, Christian, to to leverage revelation. It's, It's to call on God to act according to what God has revealed about himself. God has revealed things about himself, and now we call on him in prayer to act according to what he has said. You said you were my refuge. Be my refuge. You said you were my fortress. Be my fortress. You said that you're my rock. Be my rock. You said you're my deliverer. Be my deliverer. Christians who are delighting in God have no problem praying that way. I would argue that God himself rejoices in heaven to hear his children pray that way. You know why? Because people that are praying that way are taking God at his word. They're looking at God and saying, I really believe you're there, and I really believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. With all of this soaring confidence in God, it is no wonder David exclaims in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. 
David says, I've been redeemed by my God. God is not going to let me be destroyed. David commits his entire self to the mighty hand of his rock, his fortress, his stronghold, the God himself. Later on in verse 15, he'll say, my times are in your hands. It's a, like, it's a way of saying my whole soul, my existence, it's all in your hands. He is absolutely certain that he is immortal until the millisecond that God calls him to himself. Christians who understand this, who have this happy confidence in God, these are the Christians who pray with imperatives. Some Christians pray, you know, just God, just, just like, uh, just, just, you know, so good to just, you know, the Christians who, who are delighting in God like this, they come to God with imperatives. Look at them there. Deliver me. Incline your ear, be my rock, save me, lead me, guide me, take me out of the trap of my enemies, don't let me be put to shame. They're going to God with commands. Are you an imperative praying Christian? If you're not, it may be because you're not a Christian who's delighting in your God. Your delight has been clouded and disrupted by all of your circumstances. What is an idol? An idol is anything you worship other than the real God. And all we know so far in this psalm is that David has enemies who've set a trap for him. He's faced things like this all through his life. We're going to see more about this in just a moment. But, But notice what David does when he hears of this latest attempt to try and get him to fail. He leans into God, not his idols. And this is number two, affirm your allegiance, verse six. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. You know when David uh, first escaped from Saul, when Saul sent messengers to the house to kill him, he did so with the help of an idol. His wife took the household idol and did with it the only thing it was good for. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, Michael, that's David's wife, took the household idol, laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, he's, he's sick in bed. It was the fake David. Now, David got away, but he didn't get away because of that idol. He got away because God was his refuge. He escaped because God was his deliverer. And David learned through the following years that all idolatry was folly. And that's why he says here, I I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Worthless idols could actually be translated vain breaths. That which is insubstantial, that which is meaningless, that which does not really exist, that which is a mere vapor, that which appears like something when it is nothing. You know, your phone. Do you bow down to it? (laughs) Bing! Does it control you? Do you give it your money? A phone can be an idol if we are not careful. But you cannot delight in a phone. You cannot find your soul's satisfaction 
in a device. It is a worthless idol. It is a vain breath. It promises one thing. It delivers another. David is the true Luddite. He has no phone. Shout out to Kev. (laughs) David seeks his delight in God alone. Look at verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. So the man that is saying this is saying, I choose to rejoice and be glad in my God even though I'm in the middle of being strangled by my afflictions. David uses a bunch of words here that that make the reader feel he's like one of those characters in a movie where the hallway is squeezing in on him. He's afflicted, he's distressed, he's, he's living an oppressed life, pushed down and in from every side. If you've got an enemy at work or worse, an enemy at home, You can relate to this feeling. Your your stomach tenses, your teeth clench, you're getting crushed by your oppressor. But David tells us that in the midst of all of that, in the midst of it, he is happy. I will rejoice and be glad, verse 7. How, David? Why? Because God has seen and God knows my troubles. How did God know? Well, he's sovereign. He knows. Yeah, that's true, friends. Absolutely true. But I think what David is saying here is he's saying, look, I'll tell you how God knows. I told him. I've poured out my heart to the Lord, and I believe that that he hears all of my prayers. I've told him about my troubles. I've told him about my trials. And and when I did, Lord, you picked up my soul, and, and out of that crushing weight of all of it, and you set me down in a wide place, a broad place, a place of freedom where I could breathe. Paul and Silas sang hymns in a prison. Joseph cried out to the Lord from the pit. A man can be in the worst of straits and be full of joy because his delight is not dependent on his outward circumstances, but rather his inward connection to God. God might even be bringing these circumstances into your very short life to to help you taste and see that he is good so that you can rejoice and be glad in his chesed, his steadfast love. After all, it's hard to tell something is steadfast unless it is tested. David looks at his awful circumstances and then declares his elevated joy in his God. And that ends part one. Just like Yo-Yo Ma and Bach, I won't go into it anyway, uh, different movements. It comes back and it plays again. So we go to part two. This is number three. I realize that's confusing. Part one, part two, number three. You'll figure it out. It's in the bulletin. Lament your losses. In verse nine, be gracious to me, O Lord. I'm in distress. My eyes wasted from grief. My soul, my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. That means burned up, exhausted with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So here's David. He rejoices and he laments. And you might wonder how those two things that seem like opposites can be true at the same time. Well, just live a little longer and you'll figure it out. (laughs) You know, one of the interesting things about lament as a form of speech 
is that lament is directed at God. It's not moaning to the stars. It's not grumbling at your neighbors. Lament is a formal expression of grief to the one person who's able to do something about what he hears. Now, this is not one of those inscripted psalms. The inscription is the stuff that happens at the very front. This is not one of those long inscriptions. It just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. There's other psalms, like Psalm 3, that says, uh, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That gives us a, a, a sort of historical context, precision for what the psalm was about. This psalm's not like that, in large measure, probably because David's life was full of troubles, <laughs> I mean, the guy that slung the stone and struck down Goliath is the same guy who got chased by Saul for eight years around the wilderness, hiding in the caves and the refuges and the fortresses. He's the guy who sinned with Bathsheba and then lost a child and then had his own son rebel against him and try to usurp his throne. The man's life was full of troubles and he did not live a perfect life. Even near the end of his life, when he numbers the people, he sins so bad that many of the nation are killed. And so he acknowledges his own sins in his sufferings. I don't know about you, but I can relate to verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David was a realist. Life, even, even though he was delighting in God, his life was 70 years of trouble, sorrows, and sighings. And if it weren't for the grace of God, he would have sank under the weight of his own guilt and unrighteousness. Sound familiar? But added to that burden is the weight of everybody else's sin against him, verse 11. Because of my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been, I've been forgotten like one who's dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. As if life wasn't hard enough, Satan invented discernment bloggers. <laughs> and David, David's listening to the bloggers of his day. He can see the writing on the wall. He knows people are whispering in back alleys about him trying to usurp and plotting ways to get him out of the way. Sometimes I read these bi biographies, like World War II biographies and things, and, you know, these leaders who say, well, I knew my enemy was going to do such and such, so I did this, and I was right. And every time I read it, I think, Really? Because every time I guess what somebody's going to do, I'm wrong. <laughs> and like, sometimes people think, you know, elders of the church, you know, they got these deals that they're doing. Like, we're just praying and begging God to be merciful and waiting upon his providence and sovereignty, <laughs> saying, Lord, please lead, please guide. You know that prayer of Jehoshaphat, like, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This flows from the lips of your elders often. <laughs> I want to be a guy like David. I want a simple life, just living it before God, living it with other people. A life that deals with the plain truth of the matter. That's, that's David's life. And when you live that way, sometimes you're going to lament, even while you're rejoicing. This takes me to the fourth thing, a variation on a theme we've already seen. Leverage his law, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Yahweh, O Lord, I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. That is a lovely prayer 
What a great thing to memorize, to know. You can pray this prayer. <laughs> because you're looking at God and saying, you're my God, not Moloch, not Baal, not Netflix, not my phone. You are where I'm gonna find satisfaction for my soul. So rescue me, rescuer. Deliver me, deliverer. Do you pray God's word like this? We spoke about it just a moment ago. David is leveraging revelation again. He's leaning this time into the benediction that God wrote for the priests to speak over the people of Israel. Verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. What's David thinking about? Number six, when God says to Aaron, here's a benediction, a blessing that you're to speak over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And David says, you know what? I've been going to the uh, worship services my whole life, and I've heard the priest speaking these words. The priest has been saying it, Lord, do it. Make your face shine upon me. Bless me. Look, benedictions are not spells cast on the followers of God. They are wish prayers that God wrote for us to speak in order to bless one another and to increase our confidence in him. Isn't that nice of God to do, by the way? Just to say, here, speak this. And then he leverages God's character. Look, God, you're the one who said the wicked would not prosper. Well, it looks to me like wicked men are starting to prosper, so deal with them, Lord. Keep them, keep them in their place, and you keep your promise. Verse 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Kids, Sheol is a place of the grave after people die. Let them go there quietly. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently, arrogantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. David understands who he is, and David understands the promises that God had made to him in particular as the king of Israel. And those promises are not yet fulfilled. He's not sitting with ease on the throne of Israel. And yet that's what the Lord had essentially promised. So David is pleading with God to deal with the wicked, to deal with the liars, to deal with the corrupt, to deal with the insolent, to deal with the proud, to deal with the contemptuous, and take care of them, Lord, so that you could fulfill your promises to me. And he is sure God will. And he's sure of this because he's a man who has chosen to find his fulfillment and his happiness in God himself. But he ain't doing it alone. And this is vital to see. It takes us to our fifth point, which is the most exciting for me, which is fortify your friends. In the end of this psalm, there are three couplets, groups of two verses. Three groups of two verses. You can see them laid out on the page. And it's as if David looks around and he says, all right, brothers and sisters, delight in God. Delight in God, brother. Delight in God, sister. Delight in God, brother. Delight in God, sister. And then he says, let me tell you how to do that. And by doing this, David is serving us so well because he's giving us things to say to one another as believers in God in order to increase one another's joy in God. Isn't that awesome? Let me show them to you. What's the first thing we're going to see? Well, I noted the fact that delight, delighting in God is not a solo project. It's not like you run home, whip up your delight, and come to church. <laughs> 
Part of what you're doing is you're involved in one another's lives. You're praying through the membership directory. What are you going to pray? Oh, God, give that brother delight in you today. Even if he's not thinking about you right now, hear this prayer and invade his life. Sorry, I'm telling you what I pray for you all the time. Maybe I want to keep it secret. I don't know. Uh, But just invade his life, make him think of you, make him remind him how great you are and, and cause his heart to swell in delight in you. If you would all pray that for me, I would be thrilled. Thank you. When you like everybody here praying that for you. And then when we're together, how are we going to encourage one another? We look at one another and we say, hey, sister, he will protect you. This is verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Notice that David has moved in the psalm from talking all about his experience to our experience. He is speaking about all who delight in the Lord, all those who take refuge in him. God does things for them in the plural. plural. And the first thing he does is, is he stores up goodness for them. Oh, how abundant is your goodness what you've stored up for those who fear you. Now, it would be fine enough if all that meant was God was storing up a whole lot of goodness in glory, and the moment we die and we're with the Lord, it is all given to us. That would be great, right? Like, no complaint. But look at what he says. You have stored up for those, the goodness you've stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. No, David says... This goodness is going to be in real time. This goodness is going to happen in this life. You're going to show me this goodness so all the world can see. And the way God does this is by answering the first prayer of the psalm. Do you remember it back in verse 2? Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. He says, you know, when you're, you look at the Lord, God is the one who hides me in his presence. He tucks me away in that impregnable shelter. He cuts off all the plots and the whisperings of others, and he gives me himself. David is not suggesting here that when you delight in God, God spares you from the trial. But what he says is that God will be with you in the trial. He will satisfy in the trial. Easy to say. In one of my greatest trials. One of my greatest trials. I found it a constant battle of the soul to keep going back to the Lord. My temptation would be anxiety. Worried about what might come. What might happen to this person. What might happen to these people. Things outside of my control. Enemies coming, lying plots, coming, coming, coming. What a fight. But what a deliverance. When every time you turn, he's there. Is he your delight? This takes us to the second thing. He'll protect you. And he loves you. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord for he's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Besieged, attacked from all around, can't get out. You leave the city, you die. They're trying to get in. It's besieged. I set in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. 
but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. What kinds of things have you said in your alarm? Sisters, maybe go back to when you were a tween. What kinds of things did you say in your alarm? Everybody hates me. I have no friends. I'll never have a friend. You hate me. I hate you. You say, don't make fun of tweens. Tween, nice tween girls. I had tween girls. Whoops. I guess I just, in in like, sorry, daughters. Uh, But I also just say, like, tween boys do the same thing. They just, they don't really formulate sentences yet. It's like, food. (laughs) So I've lived through it all. What kind of things have you said in your alarm? Ever said or thought this? God doesn't see me. He's forgotten about me. He doesn't care. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. He doesn't see. That's what David felt, but it was not what was true. A couple Sunday nights ago, Tristan taught us, a wise person interprets their circumstances by God's character. They never interpret God's character by their circumstances. Maybe it was after he spoke these words in his alarm that David came to his senses. Something changed because instead of despairing, he started praying. And instead of losing heart, he started launching petitions to the Lord. And there is a part of God's great love that we will only experience as we rely on him and delight in him in the worst of our trials. David pleaded with God. And God wondrously displayed his love. Perhaps the Lord has you in the thick of trials today so that he can show you the depth of his love tomorrow. It is good to delight in God when your city is blessed. It is perhaps better to delight in God when your city is besieged. Not only will God, this God of yours, protect you and love you, brother, not only will he strengthen you, He will be with you, sister. This is what we're telling each other again and again. And our third thing, we're going to tell each other, he will strengthen you. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is a little more than a pep talk. You've got to be really careful here to pay attention to what promise is given. It's not a promise to have all of your troubles removed. It is a promise to be preserved and strengthened through those trials. With every temptation, he provides what? The way of escape. doesn't mean he takes the temptation away. God's going to take care of the justice on your enemies. And in the meantime, he will make sure that you have the courage to move forward. You know what courage is, right? Courage is that inner fortitude to choose and to do what is right, even when it looks like doing that might lead to your death. 
Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of misgivings. Some of the most courageous people I know in this church, people who I know have dread, for instance, of engaging with other human beings, are convicted by God's word that they should do so, and they do, and I watch how God uses them. (laughs) As they love others, dying to self, that's courage. That is why this psalm is so important. You know this is a popular psalm in the Bible, right? Jonah quoted it. Jeremiah quoted it. There was a third person who quoted it. Look at verse 7. You have seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. Verse 9, my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Oh, we know of a man who suffered greatly in a dark garden, who prayed in deep distress of soul to his heavenly Father as his body sweat great drops of blood. Look at verse 13. They scheme together against me. They plot to take my life. We know a man who endured the lies of his enemies as they falsely accused him of sin and secretly plotted to murder him even though he was innocent. Look at verse 22. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. We know a man who never said this, but was cut off from God's sight as he endured the penalty for sins that he never committed. Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. We know a man who spoke these very words hanging on a Roman cross. Not as an expression of defeat or resignation or surrender, but just as David spoke them, as an expression of total confidence in his father. When David wrote these words, he was expecting to not die. That's what he means by them. He was expecting God to intervene in his case and to deliver him. And when the greater David, our Lord Jesus, took these same words to himself, he elevated their significance to a a new and greater level. He knew that in just a moment he would give up his spirit and die. But he quotes Psalm 31 so all of us know the internal sense of his untouchable confidence in his father who would raise him from the dead to a never-ending life. Not just one rescue from one trial, but the great rescue from the greatest trial. He breathed his last, and he was in paradise with his Father. And that same Lord Jesus offers that same eternal life and uninterrupted delight to all whose souls are hidden in him. Have you repented from your sins? Have you turned and put your hope for eternal life in Jesus? Oh, friend, there is no way, no possible way to be happy in God unless you are first right with his son. 
And the only way to be right with his son is to renounce all the things that you have said and done that he calls sin. Every lie, every lustful thought, every harsh word. It's to look at all of them as a great heap and renounce them and reject them and call them what they are. They are sins and they are an affront to God. And then it's to look to Jesus and to identify yourself with the man who prayed in the garden and the man who surrendered his spirit and the man who gave up his life for sinners like you and say, All I've got is you. I identify with you. You're my only hope. You are my savior. Be my refuge. Be my deliverer. Be my rock. Have you done that? There's nothing to hold you back. Oh, Christian, when you remember what God has done for you in the midst of your deepest trials, Is there not yet a pilot light of joy deep in your heart that says, even so, even so, Lord Jesus. May God lift us all from our Eeyore ways to be the kind of people who delight in him to his great glory, even in the worst of our days. David is the anti-Eeyore. The Lord Jesus, of course, far more so. Brother, sister, you can have that same delight, that same confidence in God of the people who have lived before us. Think of the great Czech reformer, John Huss, as they were leading him to burn him at the stake. They tormented him. They said to him these words, we devote your soul to hell. And Huss looked him all in the eye and said, but I commit my spirit into your hands, my Lord Jesus. May God ensure that each of us so live. Let's pray together. Without ever being trite, make us, Lord, the happiest people on earth with a true joy of the Lord. Help us in this regard. Help us to bring maximum glory to your name by finding maximum delight in you. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.